We want to welcome all of you to church today. It is so good to see all of you. Welcome to all of our locations, our online, our television audience. We're glad everybody is here to hear a word from God. If you have your Bible, would you take it out? If you need a Bible, raise your hands and the ushers would be happy to give you one. Let's all hold it up nice and high and say this out loud together. Ready, go. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, I will hide his word in my heart so I can be all that God has destined me to be. Amen. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? We are going to the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, and we are going to begin to turn our attention to what I like to call the eight days that changed the world, the eight greatest days in the history of mankind. Of course, that began on what we call Palm Sunday. I know it's a few weeks away, but so many events transpired between Palm Sunday and also the culmination of the greatest days in history, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we turn our attention to that time frame in history, I want us to look into the lives of the people who are part of the biblical account. And I want us to see how our lives can be lived for his glory through what they experienced. And so Matthew chapter number 26, beginning in verse number 47 says, And while he was speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and he said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. How then could the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Today, as we fix our focus on perhaps um, one of, today we will fix our focus on perhaps the most infamous character or person in the Easter story, and his name is Judas. Judas set it all off. If it wasn't for Judas, it wouldn't have got set into motion. Actually, Lazarus set it off because when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, from that point they said, we can't stop this guy's raising people from the dead now. And from that point they sought to kill him. But Judas was the instrument by which they seized Jesus. And so today I want to talk to you from the subject, the Judas gift, the Judas Gift. I know it doesn't seem like Judas is a gift, but trust me, he's a gift. The Judas gift. Let's pray. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, 
Would you open every heart, open every ear? Would you speak to every single one of us in a powerful and profound way? Father, thank you for every gift that you've given us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. The Judas gift, it's a little bit of a a mind bender, purposely designed to be that way. Most of us don't consider enemies as a gift. In fact, the word enemy means adversary or opponent. Sometimes um, it is it, it can mean that which is opposed to or hostile to, that which tries to stop you from accomplishing your purpose. It also describes someone who's attempting to harm or to weaken or to stop or to steal or to kill or destroy uh, anything that you and I might be setting out to do. And because we know that that is what an enemy is, we find it challenging to obey scripture when it says things like, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and, and, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love those who come to steal. Love those who come to kill. Love those who are hostile towards you. Love those who try to hurt you. Love those who try to stop you. Love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be your Uh, your children of your father who is in heaven. To most of us, that is not the response that we give to our enemies. We think of the words of Jesus and we say, no, thank you. Forgive them? Well, maybe I'll try. Refuse to retaliate? Uh, I might be able to do that. Ignore the crazy post that they put on my social media? I'll, I'll try not to get sucked into that foolishness. But bless them? Do good to them? Pray for them? No, no, thank you, Jesus. And the reason why we say that is because we don't realize that our enemy can actually be a gift in our life. And over and over in scripture, we are told or taught this principle, and some places it's more obvious than others. For instance, in um, one place in scripture, the Bible tells us that blessed are we when we are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed, empowered to prosper are we when we are persecuted for righteousness sake. Well, the only way that we can be persecuted is if we have an enemy. And so in that little verse right there, there is something to be seen. And that is our enemy can also be a ticket to blessing or prospering in our life or or seeing and living the kind of life that God wants us to. And so when we come to this particular text, we see this unfolding before our eyes. I want you to notice what Jesus calls Judas. He says, friend. This is particularly interesting that Jesus would call Judas a friend because when you look at what Judas did to Jesus, it's not something that friends would normally do. And when you converse that or contrast that with what Jesus called Peter, he called Peter Satan. You remember that story or that portion of the Bible where um, Peter comes to Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. In other words, you are the anointed one. You are, you are the one who is going to deliver his people. You are the one who is going to take us out from the tyranny of Rome. That's what the Messiah or the Christ meant to the Jewish people. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He was referring 
to Daniel. In Daniel's uh, book, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, or it's another term for the Messiah, one that will rescue from Roman tyranny. And Jesus says, it's good that you say that I am the Son of God, but then he begins to teach them, the Scripture says, that the Son of God must suffer at the hands of, of the elders and the chief priests and be killed and be put to death and in three days rise again. He begins to speak openly to them about this. And then Peter takes him aside. Do you remember it? And he begins to rebuke him. And the reason why he begins to rebuke him is because this is not what the Jews considered the Messiah to be. The Messiah was not going to die. The Messiah was not going to be put to death. The Messiah is not going to lose. The Messiah is going to conquer. And so he pulls Jesus aside. And when he pulls Jesus aside, he begins to rebuke him. And the word rebuke here is an interesting word. It's the same verb that is used whenever Jesus talks to demons. It means literally to chide in the most powerful way. And so here we find Peter rebuking Jesus because Jesus says that his mission is to go to the cross and die and then be resurrected again. It's different. It doesn't match the expectations that Peter had of the Messiah, which is a whole another story and sermon in and of itself. What do you do when God doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do when God responds differently than you think God is going to respond? And so he takes him aside. He begins to chide him. He begins to rebuke him. And what does Jesus say? He says, get thee behind me, Satan, for you don't have the things of God in mind. And so when you look at these two things, you see Jesus calling Judas a friend, but you see him calling Peter, Satan. And this contrast, this, this these words become even more stunning when you look at the actions that preceded both of these conversations or around these two people. For instance, when you look at what Jesus or what Judas did, it's absolutely astounding. Judas was a betrayer, but look at how intense the betrayal was. Matthew chapter 26, verse number 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve. In other words, this was somebody that was hand-selected by Jesus. One of twelve. Jesus could have picked anybody to be part of his inner core, anybody to be part of his twelve disciples. But he picked Judas, so Judas is hand-picked by him. And John's gospel tells us, John chapter 13, verse number 39, that he had the charge of the money. Judas was the treasurer, one version says, of the ministry of Jesus, which kind of also is a little brain, uh, uh, brain bending because most people think Jesus' ministry had no money. Well, if Jesus' ministry had no money, why did they have a treasurer? Why did they have somebody in charge of the money? Matter of fact, one particular portion of Scripture says Judas held the bag. In other words, they had a bag of money. And it wasn't just a little bag of money, it was a sack of money. Matter of fact, there was so much money in that bag that the Bible also tells us that Judas skimmed off of it from time to time and nobody knew except Jesus that he was skimming from it. If you got $10 and somebody takes one, you know somebody took $1. But if you got a lot of money and somebody skims off the top, you can never tell. I remember growing up and my mother refutes this story, but it's facts. My mother used to have like a stack of $100 bills in her drawer. And I used to go help myself every now and again. And she never knew. Now, if she just had a little money, she would have known there's a hundred dollars missing there. But she had a stack in her jaw. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. Judas, 
Judas was in charge. And by the way, when I got serious with Jesus, I went and confessed to my mother and repented to my mother and asked her to forgive me and I prayed that she wouldn't ask me to pay her back because I don't know how much money I stole from her. Anyway, it's amazing how God can make thieves into preachers. I don't know how God does it. He uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. But anyway, Judas was in charge of the money. Now, why do I tell you this? Because you don't put just anybody in charge of the money. The people you put in charge of the money are people who you trust, people who you have lots of conversations with, people who are close to you, people who are privy to things that nobody else is privy to. And so this wasn't just a hand-picked relationship. This was a hand-picked and this was a tight relationship. But notice it goes even deeper than that, this kind of betrayal, this enemy that Judas was to Jesus. Matthew chapter 26 verse number 48 says, now his betrayer had given them a sign. Now the word in the original language for sign literally indicates something that has been prearranged and premeditated. And so while Jesus was doing everything that he was doing with Judas, when he was serving them at the last supper, when he was giving him bread, when he was washing his, his feet, Judas was playing along the whole time, but he had a plot in place. He had prearranged in order to betray Jesus. So this is somebody who's handpicked. This is somebody who is highly trusted. This is somebody that is on the inside and while they're on the think of an undercover cop. You know, he's getting along. He's making everybody think that he's one of them. This is Judas. He arranges for a sign and he says, whoever I kiss, that is the one. And the word kiss here is also uh, very, very telling because the word kiss speaks of intimacy and covenant. It's not just like greeting one another with a holy kiss, like just saying hello to somebody on the cheek. This is something that is intense. This is something that speaks of covenant. And we we understand the importance of covenant. We see it modeled for us at the Last Supper when Jesus breaks the bread and, and, and drinks the cup. It's symbolic of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, which is our covenant. And so this is somebody who has gone through extreme Measures in order to hurt Jesus. Imagine the emotional pain and upheaval and how difficult this must have been for Jesus. Betrayal's no joke. You cannot be betrayed by somebody who's not close to you. Betrayal hurts in the worst possible way. But notice what Judas does. Here's our text. It says, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came with a great multitude. If you go over to John's gospel, in John's gospel, it describes in greater detail this great multitude. It says, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priest and Pharisees, came hither with lanterns and torches and weapons. And, and so he brings this this huge crowd, this this multitude of a band, a band was a military cohort of about three to six hundred of the most highly trained Roman soldiers in existence who were specifically tasked and stationed overlooking the temple that in a moment's notice they would pounce if there was an insurgency in the temple. 
And so he brings this band, three to six hundred, these highly trained Roman soldiers and officers. These were the temple cops. These were the people who were also highly, highly trained. They were the boots on the ground. Instead of overlooking the temple, they were there standing guard in the temple. So together, this these were some of the most highly trained and deadliest military and police that you can possibly have. And Judas brings these people with him. But notice he doesn't just bring them with him. He brings lanterns and torches. And the reason why he brings lanterns and torches is because Judas has gone to this place many times before. The Garden of Gethsemane was the place that Jesus would often take his disciples to be a part with them. And so Judas is very familiar with the terrain. He understands that in the Garden of Gethsemane there's tons of caves. He understands that there's lots of trees. He understands that there's lots of hiding spots. And remember, Judas has been with Jesus for some time. And this wasn't the first time that they tried to arrest Jesus and every other time because it was before his time Jesus would slip out of the way and everybody would be wet. where'd he go where'd he go and so Judas understood how slippery Jesus could be and I mean that in the most sovereign way how slippery he could be and so he says listen we're going to a place there are caves there are trees there are we need to bring a lot of people with us and we need to bring some torches and some lanterns just in case he tries to escape so that he doesn't and get off. Think of the intensity of this betrayal. But notice it's not just torches and, and lanterns. It says weapons. Weapons. One particular, uh, or, or verse number forty-seven of our text says swords and clubs. In other words, these were these were these swords were combat swords. They were they were meant to kill you up close. And these clubs were were things that they would hit you with and knock you completely out. And so they they are specifically draw, uh, designed for close combat and to draw blood. And so Judas says to him, "Listen." We're going to go and we're going to get this guy. But if we're going to get this guy, I mean, think of the, think of how deranged this is. When people go to this kind of length in order to, to hurt somebody, I mean, premeditation of this nature. And he says, if we're going to get this guy, we, we can't go alone. No, no, no. You don't understand. You don't understand. You and me, we're not going to capture this guy. We're not going to get this guy. We need to bring some soldiers with us and not just any soldiers. And we need to bring some lights with us, but not just any lights. And the reason why he's saying this is because he's basically telling, I've seen this guy up close. I've seen what power he has. This guy is a one-man wrecking machine. This guy opens blind eyes. He unstops deaf ears. He walks on water. He multiplies loaves and fishes. This guy defies nature. I've seen this guy. I mean, this guy has turned water into wine. I've seen this guy. This guy has raised people from the dead. Don't you dare think that just one or two of us, we need to go at this guy with an army. And as you're listening to this, I want you to hear something. If you're under the siege of an enemy right now, I want you to understand who and what is by your side. This is the God of angels' armies that is by your side. This is the God of heaven. This is the God who raises the dead. And so they're going to, to capture him in this, this highly planned strike and betrayal. And with all this going on, right? All this going on, Judas is betraying Jesus. And yet when Judas comes to him to kiss him, Jesus says, do what you've come to do, friend. 
Not the F word I would have chosen. Just being real in the moment, you know, with you. I mean, not exactly how I would have spoken to Judas at that particular moment, but he calls him friend. Contrast that with Peter's actions. Peter, Matthew chapter 26, verse number uh, 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 51 says, And suddenly one of them who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, put away your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot pray my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Now, this is powerful in every single way. In other words, Jesus is telling Peter, he's saying, they're not getting me because they have more power than I do. He says, I can call on my father 12 legions of angels. One legion of angels is 72,000 angels. In the book of Isaiah, it talks about one angel, one angel. Destroying 185,000 men. So 72,000 angels, if you do the math, can take out 13,320,000,000 men. 13,300,000,000, that's more than twice the number of people living on the earth. So think about what's happening here. Think about it from the spiritual point of view. God is laying down his life. Nobody is taking his life from him. This, Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't captured like, you know, he was trying to get away, sneaking to get away. Jesus willfully was giving himself. And Peter still didn't understand, remember the conversation. He was trying to tell Peter, openly speaking to the disciples about what would happen to the Son of Man, that he's not the kind of savior that you think, that you really don't need deliverance from the things of in, that are in this world, although you do. What you really need deliverance from is the cosmic situation that has happened. You need deliverance from the sin that is against your soul. And so I'm not the kind of savior that you think. You think I'm coming to set you free here just on the earth, but I'm coming to set you free spiritually. And he said, I, I, I don't need your help. And what does Peter do? Peter picks out a sword and he lops off the ear of, of the servant of the high priest. His name is Malchus, we know from other portions of scripture and study. And this was a crime. This was a crime in every way. It, it, it was punishable by at least life imprisonment and sometimes death for them to do this. And so what does Jesus do? He reaches down, we're told in scripture, he picks up the ear, he puts it back, he, re, he erases the evidence that is against Peter because he wasn't there or Peter wasn't there to help Jesus clean up Jesus' mess. Jesus came to help us clean up our mess. Our mess was the sin mess. And what did Jesus do? He removed all of the evidence that was against us, totally restored us to perfect condition again. But here's really the point. This is who I want when I walk down a dark alley. I want Peter on my side. I don't want Judas on my side. I want somebody that's ready to throw down. Somebody that's ready to say, I know it's only us 12, and I know it's the, they got three to 600 plus, plus cops and everything. But if we going down, we ain't, we ain't going down like this. We're not punking out in this situation. Let's go. I, I want somebody like that. Jesus calls that guy an enemy. He calls Judas a friend. I'm kind of confused a little bit by the situation. Except if you realize that your enemy can often be a gift in your life. 
An enemy can often be a gift. Matthew chapter 10, I mentioned it before. Blessed are empowered to prosper in every area of your life are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Can I just point something out? It says falsely. Somebody's saying something about you that's true. You're not blessed. You need to correct something. You know, everybody's a hater. You know, somebody brings out something that's actually factual. They're just a hater. They're just, no, they're not a hater. You just have something you got to clean up in your life. But if it's falsely against you, blessed are you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice what he is saying. He's saying that in order to have this kind of opposition, you've got to have an enemy. And so in some ways, our enemies are our tickets to a blessed life. Matter in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 17, it says this, for our light affliction, affliction, by the way, comes from enemies. And enemies aren't just people, they're things, they're struggles, they're, they're, they're situations that we, we find ourselves in for our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What does glory mean? The word glory means to resemble. It means likeness. It describes something that more clearly bears the image of something else. It's not coincidence that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into the fire, that when the king looked in, the king said to his servants, didn't we throw only three in? And they said, yes, sir, we only saw three. He said, didn't we throw them inbound? They said, yes, sir, we threw them inbound. He said, then how come I see four men loose and the fourth looks like onto the son of the gods? What was he saying? What was the scripture showing us? That whenever there is a affliction in our life, if we are faithful to God, that affliction can actually work for us and not against us. How does that affliction work for us and not against us? Well, it conforms us. It helps us to bear the image of Christ even more and more in our lives. How so? How so? Well, think about the scripture in Malachi Chapter number three, verse number two, it says, he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. What does this mean? Well, a silversmith, what they do is they take silver in its raw form, which has got all sorts of impurities and you can't even tell it's silver. Sometimes it's like a hunk of coal. And what they do is they put it into these really hot fires and they sit really close by. And as they sit really close by, what happens is all of the impurities that are blocking the shine of the silver begin to get loosed from the silver and the silversmith will begin to, or the refiner will begin to pull those things off and pull those things off. And it watches very, very carefully and it knows that it's time to take it out of the fire when it's sees its own reflection in the silver. What am I telling you? I'm telling you there are times in our life where God seems absent. There are times in our life where it seems like God is just, you know, somewhere else. And our enemies are coming. It seems like our enemies are winning. The fire's getting hotter and all this stuff is happening in our life. And it seems like, well, what is happening? It's not that God is putting you in the fire, but the enemy is oftentimes using all of these circumstances to try to destroy you. And God is like, I know you sent us to destroy them, but the fact of the matter is what this is really going to do for them is it's going to make them reflect my glory even more. And that's why the scripture says, 
Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience. And when patience has its perfect work, you will be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. Why? You will begin to reflect Jesus more than you ever had before. Your enemy can be a gift. Why is your enemy a gift? Well, because your enemy can push you to pray. Can't your enemy? You might recall that Jesus knew Jesus, Judas would betray him at the Last Supper, which is where Jesus was with Jesus and the other disciples immediately prior to him taking them to the Garden of Gethsemane where he went to do what? Pray. It was when he knew his time was come. When he knew the enemy was about to do his work that Jesus went to the garden to pray. To pray for strength to stand up to what Judas would set into motion, which was his arrest and his crucifixion. And pray he did. Not just pray a little bit, he prayed in anguish of soul. He prayed so hard and felt so heavy that he asked his friends to help him in prayer. He prayed so hard and he felt so much anguish that the Bible says he sweat drops of blood. Have you ever noticed how hard you pray when an enemy shows up? I don't know, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe maybe I'm the only one whose prayer life kind of is like this, you know, going along, going along. An enemy shows up, all of a sudden the prayer life goes like this. I'm past the enemy, all of a sudden the prayer life goes. Maybe I'm just the only one. Maybe I'm just a regular guy. You guys are all spiritual giants in every single way. And I know your prayer life is up here all the time. And an enemy doesn't cause you to pray more. Have you ever noticed what happens to us when we are under siege? Have you ever noticed what happens to our prayer life when we're going through a struggle, when we are in anguish of soul? What do we do? We go and we commune with God. We get into that place of intimacy with God that prayer produces in our lives because the enemy has pushed us to that place. And if we believe that prayer works and that prayer saves and that prayer empowers and that prayer fills us with godly wisdom that we otherwise would not have and that prayer changes us and that prayer impregnates us with God's strength and that prayer lifts the burden off us and puts it on God and that prayer changes our countenance and prayer prepares the way for our success and prayer puts a hedge of protection around us and prayer frustrates the plans of the enemy and that prayer allows God to interfere in our circumstances because prayer is earthly license for heavenly interference if we believe in what prayer is and what prayer does then isn't the appearance of an enemy Sometimes a gift. Because it pushes us into that place where we can become and be and live and receive and walk in everything that God has for us. And this is not just occasionally in the Bible. Almost everybody who has had an enemy showed up shows places of of more persistent prayer. One of the greatest of these is the Apostle Paul. You remember when Satan came to buffet him in every way that he he was, came to stop him from preaching the gospel. He assigned a messenger to Paul. Everywhere Paul went, something was happening to him. He was being shipwrecked and left for dead. And I mean, it was just it was just too much, right? Because because he had literally a demonic foe assigned to stop him. And listen to what the Bible says, Second Corinthians. Chapter 12, verse number 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Can, can you hear what he's saying? In other words, it made me pray. 
Not just a little bit, not just for a second, but every minute that I had, I got up early and prayed. I prayed in the middle of the day. I prayed at lunchtime. I, I prayed when I got, went to bed. I prayed about it when I woke up and in the middle of the night. My prayer path was worn out. I visited the throne of my father more times because of my enemy than I can count. I was in constant communion with the father because of my enemy. I was living and moving and having my being for the first time in a long time because of my enemy. It didn't move me just a little bit, but it moved me a whole lot. My enemy might have come to steal, kill, and destroy all the things in my life, my health, my peace, my marriage, my job, my finances, but he gave me a deeper relationship with God. Matter of fact, the message says it this way, Satan's angel did his best to get me down. What he in fact did was push me to my knees. I love God. I love God so much. Because God takes everything that the enemy means to corrupt and to hurt and to destroy and he redeems it for our good intentions and he redeems it to make us bear the image of Christ even more and so even though that enemy has come to steal, kill and destroy, God will use your enemy to be a gift in your life. Why else can the enemy be a gift? Because the enemy compels us to rely on God. Here's Jesus, he's, he's been in the garden, he's praying because of Judas, because of what is before him. And he prays, you know, the, the prayer, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way? Now, what cup is he referring to? And a lot of people get this confused because a lot of people think that Jesus doesn't want to go to the cross. The cross doesn't scare Jesus. The pain, the, the whipping, the beating, that doesn't scare Jesus. The, the embarrassment doesn't scare Jesus. The plucking out of his beard doesn't scare Jesus. The, the stripes on his back, not, none of that scares Jesus. The cup that he's referring, let this cup, notice he says, don't let this cross ba- pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. The cup in scripture is often symbolic of the judgment of God. He's saying, he's saying, the thing that is causing me to sweat drops of blood in this moment is not the cross, it is the cup. It is because on that cross, something is going to happen to me. On that cross, I am going to become sin for all of humanity. And on that cross, when I become sin, I am going to become God forsaken. You remember the cry from the cross. It is the most pathetic of all cries that he cries from the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken by friends is said. A wife forsaken by a husband is sad. A child by forsaken by his parents or her parents is sad. But a man forsaken by God is tragic. It is the most tragic condition that you and I can ever, ever encounter of life. And it pushes us to a place or should push us to a place of extraordinary sorrow of extraordinary anguish to quote the theologian Charles Spurgeon he hung there on that accursed tree he who hung there on that accursed tree had been from all of eternity the object of the father's love 
It was his daily delight to be forever in the presence of the Father. His own joy had been to behold the Father's countenance. The Father's presence had been his home, the Father's bosom, his dwelling place, the Father's glory he shared before the world ever was. During his 33 years on earth, the Son had enjoyed unbroken communion with the Father, never a thought that was out of harmony with the Father's mind, never a violation, but what originated in the Father's will, never a moment spent out outside of his conscious presence. What then must he have meant or must it have meant to be forsaken by God? The hiding of God's face from him was the most bitter ingredient of that cup which the Father had given to the Redeemer to drink. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are words of unequal pathos. They mark the climax of suffering. The soldiers had cruelly mocked him. They had arrayed him with a crown of thorns. They had scourged and beaten him. They even went so far as to spit upon him and pluck out his hair. They stripped him naked and put him to an open shame. Yet in all of this, he suffered in silence. They pierced his hands and feet, yet still he endured the cross, despising the shame. The vulgar crowd taunted him, and the thieves which were crucified with him flung the same insults into his face, yet in silence he suffered. In response to all this, he suffered at the hands of man. Not a cry escaped from his lips, except when the concentrated wrath of heaven descended upon him. Then he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If it be possible, can this cup pass from me? This was not something that was a light lift. This was something that was a heavy lift. I know that the Bible says, Jesus says, my, my burden is my easy and my yoke is light. But can I tell you that when God asks you to do something, as much as it is easy and as much as it is light, when you do it in the strength of God and you submit your will to him, there is a struggle sometimes to get into or to give up everything that is required for you to follow what God has called you to do. It's heavy. Jesus said, is there any other way? And then he said this, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This is not a model way to pray. This is what Christianity has done to this mess. We stick a, if it be thy will, at the end of everything. That's not what this scripture is talking about. This is not something Jesus did not know what the will of God was in. This was something he was struggling to submit to what he knew was the will of God. This was him putting his flesh under. This was the saying, I realize how heavy this is, but God, I don't want, I want to kill my will and I want to surrender my will to you. Don't you dare pray for what something Jesus has paid for on the cross if it be your will. That is an insult to heaven in every single way, but there will be times in your life where you will struggle with everything in you to surrender to what God has called you to do and you will ask in your spirit if this cup can pass from me if there is another way and God will say no there is no other way I need you to surrender here and prayer pushes you to this place but it is your enemy that pushes you to prayer and therefore it is your enemy that often will push you to a place of surrender 
And that place of surrender culminates on the cross where Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What is he saying? I place my, my enemy, this assignment, this thing that has come against me, has pushed me, has compelled me to place Everything that I am in your hands, into your hands, I commit my spirit. What a safe place. What a miraculous place. What a protected place. What a grace place. What a healing place. What a peaceful place. What a comforting place. What an assuring place. Into your hands, I commit it to you. I cast the worry on you. I cast the care on you. I put it in your hands knowing that when your hands touch it, messes turn into miracles. When your hands touch it, little turns into into much. When your hands touch it, brokenness turns into blessing. When your hands touch it, panic turns into peace. When your hands touch it, death turns into life. When your hands touch it, sickness turns into healing. When your hands touch it, tears turn into testimonies. When your hands touch it, ashes turns into beauty. If I can just get it in your hands, your enemy will compel you to put what you're keeping ownership of in God's hands. And your enemy can therefore be a gift. Your enemy can also be a gift because it produces greater power in your life. Jesus was, of course, pushed to pray by the enemy in a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is the olive press. It was an olive garden. That's what it means. Olive press. Where olives were harvested to make olive oil. But in order to get the oil out of the olive, the olive had to go through the press. And when the olive goes to the press, it crushes the olive. The olive is destroyed, but the oil is extracted. Now, some of you may already be spiritually where I'm going. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief comes to crush. But I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. What has come to crush you will wind up producing or extracting oil from you. Oil in scripture is symbolic of the anointing of the Holy Spirit or the divine enablement of God on your life. What I'm telling you is God will use the enemy to put a greater anointing on you. The enemy will come at you thinking he's going to to destroy you, but I promise you if you stay faithful to God you will come out of that season of crushing what I call dripping. You know what I'm talking about. You know the, the kids today they have all these crazy ways of saying things. If you wear a lot of gold and jewelry, you're dripping. Here's what I've come to understand. If you go through the fire and you're faithful, you come out dripping. Trust me, you come out with an anointing that is second to nothing that could be had any other way. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things, John chapter 18, verse number 4, this is the same account. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. 
Literally, when you read this in the original language, every commentator knows that they added the word he in there so the sentence would make sense. But really what it says in the original language is when Jesus asked them, who did you come seeking? And they said, we came seeking Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am, not I am he. In other words, he was declaring who he was, the very same God that had spoken to Moses back in the Old Testament when Moses said, who should I say sent me? He said, tell him I am sent me. It was a name for God and God alone. And when Jesus said, I am, the scripture records that each of them fell to the ground backwards. And when you read it in the original language, it says that this whole host of three to 600 highly trained military soldiers plus officers fell over as if dead at the word spoken from the master because he came out of his season of prayer with a power that you cannot get any other way. He came out dripping. They fell to the ground. So much power. The power that was there was absolutely amazing. When we read in Mark's gospel, every gospel has a a little nuance in it. Every gospel gives us some detail because it depends on why the gospel writer was, was writing these things. Mark's gospel was written, Mark was the scribe of Peter. And so everything that, that Mark is recording, he's recording from the perspective of Peter. And Peter obviously made some mistakes in the story. And one of the things that Mark's gospel records, it says, now a certain young man followed him. This is as they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is that whole experience right there. And this is after they arrested Jesus. And now they're arresting Jesus. And the certain young man is following him. And it says, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. This is in the resurrection story. What do we have a naked guy running around the resurrection story for? Well, if you understand anything about the positioning of the Mount of Olives, at the bottom of the Mount of Olives was a cemetery. And the word linen cloth here is specifically a description of grave clothes. It's the same linen cloth that they wrapped Lazarus in. Same linen cloth that they would, they had put on Jesus. And it said that he, this man had a linen cloth. Well, what happened? Jesus came out of his season of prayer. He came out dripping. When he came out with so much power, they asked him, who are you? He said, I am. When he said, I am, everybody there fell over as if dead men. Everybody alive fell as over as if dead. But guess what happened to all the people in the cemetery? It said that, that literally what this is telling us is that people came out of the grave when the master spoke and said, I am. And he was a young man who was following them around. They tried to capture him because they probably knew he was dead. And they figured if there's another dead guy who's been raised to life again. There's no way that we're going to be able to kill this guy. And when he went to grab him, his 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 cloth was taken from him and so he wound up being naked for me a minute. What am I telling you? I'm telling you there was so much power in Jesus when he came out of that season of prayer that even the graves opened up again. I want you to understand what happens to you when the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. When the enemy comes to fight you in your life. When the enemy puts you to a, a trial. When the enemy put you to the test in your life when you remain faithful to God you come out dripping in every way now watch this watch this the last thing the last reason why your enemy can be a gift is because your enemy is often the doorway to your destiny 
And let me make it simple and then elevate it if the Lord will have it. You all understand that the richest people in the world are people who solve problems. When you're a problem solver, you get rewarded for it. So there are obstacles. When you solve an obstacle, there is a reward. Your enemy is the doorway to your destiny. Jesus emerges from the garden, greets him with betrayal's kiss, with an army of highly trained soldiers, with officers, with scribes and Pharisees, and Jesus responds, do what you came for, friend. Why in the world would he call him a friend? Because he was assisting in the destiny, unknowingly assisting in the destiny. So you can get upset by your enemies. You can cause your enemies to make you stay up all night, to worry, to think of interesting ways of paying them back and so on and so forth. But I've come to be at peace with our enemies. Because I realize that enemies usually stand at the doorway of a new level of destiny. And I could actually go through uh, my life, my history, and I could give you example after example of every time an enemy showed up and the new door that opened. And every door that always opens after an enemy shows up in your life, if you remain faithful, is a greater door than you ever walked through before. The arrival of an enemy in your life is a sign that your present season is finally coming to an end and you're getting ready to move into the next season of your destiny. Your enemy is a catalyst to you exiting one season and entering another. When Goliath showed up, it meant that David was getting ready to move to the palace. When Pharaoh showed up, it meant that Moses was getting ready to move to deliver. When Sambalot showed up, it meant that Nehemiah was going to rebuild the wall and be promoted to governor. When the Midians showed up, Midianites showed up, it meant that Gideon was going to become, Gideon was going to become a mighty man of valor. When Haman showed up, it meant that Hester was getting, Esther was getting ready to become queen. When the fiery furnace showed up, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were getting ready to become administrators in the province of Babylon. When the giants showed up, it meant that the children of Israel were getting ready to leave the wilderness and go into the promised land. When Potiphar's wife showed up, it meant that Joseph was getting ready to become prime minister. And when Judas showed up, it meant that Jesus was about ready to destroy the works of the devil for all mankind. Yes, you need friends, but Peter could not do for Jesus what Judas did. Your friends will encourage you, your family may humble you, but your enemy will walk you through your door of destiny. Your enemy will often make you because your enemies will prepare you. Your enemies will strengthen you. Your enemies will kick dirt on the seed of the promise in your life. Seeds contain potential, but seeds without dirt cannot produce anything. And so what happens is your enemy comes over and your enemy tries to bury you with the dirt. And as your enemy is burying you with the dirt, God is saying every bit of dirt that's meant to bury you is going to be a blessing that is going to grow you in your life. And the enemy which means to 
smother you, all of a sudden skyrockets you into the place that God has for you. Your enemy is a doorway to your destiny. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience. And when patience has its perfect work, you'll be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. All things work together for them that love God and are called according to his purpose. What is God trying to tell us? That the very things in our life that have come to destroy us, the very things that have come into our lives in order to kill us, the very things in our lives that come to steal from us are the very things God will use to make you stronger. Your testimony is you're not getting weaker. Your testimony is you're getting stronger. Your testimony is you won't fall back. Your testimony is you're getting stronger. You are getting stronger. 